will remain standing and let me have you take your Bibles out and we're going to turn them uh, to Mark chapter 12 once again today. Our reading here is going to be verses uh, 35 through 44 is to read the rest of that chapter and give a little bit of, of what is coming. We're actually going to be looking at just three verses this morning, verses 35 through 37, but we'll read on past that. Beginning in verse 35, though, Mark chapter 12, uh, let us give heed to God's word as it is read. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let me read uh, our passage for this morning again. It's verses 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today, and we ask that you would bless this time, Lord. Uh, I pray for your blessing upon me that my mind would be sharp, that my words would be um, bold and accurate, Lord. I pray that you would help us all as we hear your word to, to love your word and to come to love Christ and to understand Christ a little bit more through what we look at today. We pray it in his name. Amen. You can be seated. So as we read this passage this morning and, and read through the end of chapter 12, which in a way will bring us to the end of the, the public teaching ministry of Jesus, we're, we're continuing to study here the life and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in these verses this morning, we see a shift in focus. We have seen over the past oh, chapter and a half or so 
various delegations of high priests and scribes and elders all sent from the Sanhedrin, that supreme court of of Israel. We've seen them come to Jesus and challenge Jesus uh, to, to challenge him with various questions, hoping and intending to, to trip him up, to catch him in his words, and if possible, to gain some excuse uh, based on what Jesus says to be able to take him and to turn him over to the, the Roman officials uh, for them to arrest him. And ultimately, their design is to see Jesus put to death. And we know that in just a few days from where we're reading here, that that will, in fact, happen. They won't trip Jesus up, but they will bring him before the Romans. Because in every case, as they've brought these challenges to Jesus, we've seen Jesus answer with great uh, divine wisdom and, and turn back each and every one of their attacks. But at the end of the passage that we looked at last week, there at the end of verse 34, Uh, we read this, that after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. After they have come and and tried all of these various ways, the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Sadducees, and then a single scribe that came to Jesus, it seems that the, the Sanhedrin are kind of to the point where they figure out this really isn't getting us anywhere. And so we read that after this, no one dared to, to continue to ask him these types of questions. But now, in this passage today, Jesus now begins to take the initiative. He begins to set the agenda and to set the topic. As he teaches uh, in the temple here um, in verse 35, he's still in the temple, it's still Tuesday, and as Jesus began this day uh, coming into Jerusalem being in the temple when the Sanhedrin approached him and began these questions, we see that he's still there. And now he takes up his teaching. And as he does so, he uh, sets this agenda, he sets this, this topic that he's going to talk about. Jesus, knowing that his time is very short here, he turns his listeners' attention to something of great importance a subject that has come up many times as we've worked our way through Mark's gospel. We continue to see it over and over, the question of who is Jesus? And here particularly, the question of the Messiah. Who is the Messiah? What is the Messiah? And we're going to look at two answers to that question today. First, we're going to see the Messiah as David's son, and then we'll see the Messiah as God's son. Or we might say we're going to see him as David's son, and then secondly, we're going to see him as David's Lord. First, the Messiah as David's son. We've noted time and again as we've worked through the the Gospel of Mark here that, of course, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Remember, whenever you hear the word Christ, that the word Christ is the Greek equivalent to the the Hebrew word for Messiah. So when we say Christ, we're 
That's not his last name, though it's com- it comes to become a, a way we refer to him, but it's a title, a title that means Messiah. We've seen that over and over. But, but in the course of Jesus' ministry up to this point, Jesus, while he's never denied being the Messiah, he has downplayed it. He's kept it really a secret. Even at several points throughout his ministry, specifically commanding people not to reveal that to anybody. And perhaps the most memorable of of those is when Jesus took the disciples up into Caesarea Philippi uh, and he quizzed them, asking them, who do people say that I am? Remember that? And they gave the various answers of what people in that day were thinking of Jesus. And then, of course, Jesus turns to them and says, but who do you say that I am? And you remember Peter then answering for the group gave his great confession. And here is his answer. He said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Peter's saying, who are you? You're the Messiah. And remember that 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 elicited two responses from Jesus. One is that he said, blessed are you, Simon, Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, that is, you have not come up with this on your own, but my Father has revealed it to you. Which is always the case. Anyone who comes to an understanding of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, does so because God reveals that to him. Gives him ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart to receive. What the Scriptures teach And it's the scriptures that teach that Jesus is the Messiah. That doesn't come through nature. That doesn't come through general revelation. You have to read the Bible. You have to read what God says about Jesus to come to that. And even at that, the Spirit has to open your heart to that. So that was the first thing, is that he said that Simon, that Peter was blessed because he had had that revealed to him. But secondly, in Mark 8.30, Mark says that Jesus strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. That is, they were not to reveal to others that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, Jesus had done great things. He had revealed himself to be the Son of God. He called himself the Son of Man. But this title, Messiah, he wants to hold back And that happened at several times during his ministry so far. And we've talked about why uh, it was, why it was that Jesus was very guarded about making known his messianic identity. Again, he never denied it that he was the Messiah. And his response here to Peter's statement reinforces that. But it was not then, he said, the proper time for this to come out, to be made known. He had said at various places, my, my time had not yet come. And the issue there basically had to do with not Jesus' understanding of his um, messianic identity, but it had to do with the people's misunderstanding 
of the nature of the Messiah, of what the Messiah was coming to do. Remember, they were expecting, we've seen, one who would come as a political revolutionary who would free the Israeli people from from Roman domination, which is not what the Messiah would come to do. And Jesus didn't want to feed into that or to have people sort of try to focus or force that conception of the Messiah on Jesus. It was one time, remember, even that after doing a great miracle that the Gospels say, say that Jesus knew that they were about to try to come and make him king by force, and so he left the area. He withdrew from that location. We've, at various points as we've gone through here, spent a lot of time talking about Jesus as the Messiah, and that is the main topic this morning. But it could be that some of you are not even sure what that means. So let's take just a moment and answer the question, what is or who is this Messiah that we talk about that is so evident in uh, the New Testament and in the Old Testament? And basically, the Messiah is the one predicted in the Old Testament. He's one by whom God's kingdom is to be established and propagated in this world a king of God's own choosing who would arise in the last days to save God's people. The word Messiah, the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is right where we get Messiah, literally means anointed or the anointed one. And the term came to take on a special significance in the Old Testament in connection with with the proclamation of God's special covenant with King David in what is known as the Davidic covenant, recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It was our Old Testament reading this morning. Let me remind you of the important aspect of that in verses 11 and following. In that covenant that God swore to David, he said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father's I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And it is this that established the promise of a coming king whom God would raise up after David. And it's informed by so many other places in Scripture. Uh, It's informed, for example, by Psalm 2 that says in one portion in verses 7 through 9, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We see it uh, continue to be built up in, in the Psalms and the prophets 
where this, this outline given in 2 Samuel, this outline of a description of this one who would come, begins to be filled in more and more, like a child coloring on a coloring page, filling in the details. In Isaiah, the, this promise is connected to the coming of a future king who would also be known as Emmanuel, which means God with us. And one who would arise out of the house of David. In Jeremiah, the Messiah is referred to as the righteous branch who will come from David's line and be called God is our righteousness. In Ezekiel, this one from David's line will be set up by God as their king and as their shepherd. Just as David was a shepherd, this one will be a shepherd of God's people. And we could add to these various statements uh, by Amos and, and Hosea and Haggai and Zechariah, just continually, it's a rich, rich <coughs> teaching. This messianic expectation of God's people then remained with God's people and grew with God, within God's people, that the Messiah, this anointed servant of God and the king over his people, the restorer of the glory of Israel, would one day come on the scene. It's really a, a rich study. If you're looking for, for something to study, uh, to work through the scriptures and look at the idea of the, the building up of this teaching about the Messiah is one of those many strands of detail uh, very rich. I encourage you to embark on such a study at some point. One other point about the Messiah to briefly make is that as David was a warrior king, in fact, the reason that he was not allowed to build a house for God was because he had spilled blood, God said. Um, he was a great man of war. He brought peace to God's people by his leadership, very much of that military leadership. He destroyed the enemies of God's people. And because David was recognized in this way, the people's idea of the Messiah was sort of formed by that and grew to be one who would likewise destroy the enemies of Israel, one who would, through military might, free them from their subjugation. And in the days of Jesus, that subjugation was to the Roman Empire. And so arises this idea that the Messiah, whom they were expecting to come, would come in such a way as to liberate them from, from Rome. The Messiah was to be a great man, one of the greatest of men. But... Just that, a man, and no more. We've made mention of, of the people's misconception of the Messiah time and time again as we've worked through the, the Gospel of Mark and the different interactions that Jesus has. And so one of the primary understandings of, of the scribes, who were the experts in the Scriptures, and therefore of the people, is that the Messiah was to be David's son. 
David's descendant. And when you talk about sons in the, the scriptures and in the genealogies, it's not just means their direct son, but it means any of their descendants. And so they expected the Messiah to be David's son, which he was. But Jesus has something this morning to say about that and about the expectations that go along with it. And remember, as we go through this, that when Jesus uses the word Christ, when we use the word Christ, that that is a reference to this long-expected Messiah who was to come. And so to our texts here in verse 35, Jesus now asks his question. And as Jesus taught in the temple, verse 35 says, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Stop there. And we've just confirmed that that's right, that the Messiah is the son of David, is David's son. The New Testament writers all agree with that. In fact, they, they point to that. John 7, 41, uh, John records that while some were saying that Jesus is the Messiah, that others say is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? And Paul in 2 Timothy 2.8 says that the Christ is the offspring of David. And we can multiply that throughout the New Testament. The affirmation that yes, the Messiah was going to be David's son. In connection with, with uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and other passages throughout the Old Testament. So that's right. Jesus asked this question, though, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? What he's really asking is this. How can the scribes say, and is the Christ, is the Messiah merely the son of David? Is he only the son of David? Does that exhaust the, the meaning and the proper expectation of this one who was to come? Or is there something more? And of course, the answer is yes, there is something more. We saw it in Psalm 2, and we'll see it in another psalm in just a moment. Jesus is saying here now that now the time's come to, to deal with this expectation. Remember when Jesus and his, his group had left Jericho, there was a blind Bartimaeus who, who called out, pushed his way through the crowd and called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they tried to stop him and he called out all the more, son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. That son of David is another way of saying Messiah. This blind man saw what the scribes and others couldn't see, that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus is saying now that the time he has come for him to start to correct his hearers and that the title, Son of David and Messiah, means more than, than the scribes and the people recognized. There's something more, something more basic, something more definitive, something more important. And Jesus turns to David himself to tell us about that. And that that is what this question that he has there in verse 35, he asks in verse 35, is meant to lead to. And there's a lot to understand in what we're going to see here. 
Because the Messiah is more than, much more than, just David's son, and Jesus is going to show the people that. And it's namely that this, that namely this, that the Messiah is David's Lord because the Messiah is the Son of God. That's the second thing we want to see is the Messiah as God's Son. Or I think better, the Messiah, I mean, that's true, but the Messiah as David's Lord. In verse 36, then, Jesus goes on, and he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, if you are a student of the New Testament, if you are a regular Bible reader, you, that passage should sound very familiar to you. Uh, that verse is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. I think it might even be the most quoted verse in the New Testament. It's quoted or referenced at least 14 times. And by the way, every time it's referred to, every time it's quoted, it is being applied to Jesus. But before we get into the the text itself, notice how Jesus introduces it. He says, David himself and the Holy Spirit declare. A couple of things there. First is the fact that Jesus quotes this at all is, is significant for us sitting here today. Why didn't Jesus just say, truly, truly, I say to you, and then go on that way, these things about the Messiah? And the answer is because Jesus held the Scripture as the Word of God, the Old Testament Scriptures. And he wants us to embrace that truth, too. We can be taught by this that we draw our doctrine, we draw our understanding of who Jesus is, of who we are, of who God is, of what this creation is, We draw that from the scriptures. Jesus wants all of his hearers to have a high view of the Bible. And we want to have a high view of the Bible. I want you to have a high view of the Bible. To Jesus, and it should be to us, that the scripture speaking is God speaking. The other thing is, He also speaks of how God speaks through the Scripture. Notice that he says that it is David speaking, first of all. David himself, he says. David himself, of of who uh, we have just talked about, that that the Christ is the son of David. David himself is the one who, who speaks to this critical point. Jesus affirms that uh, this passage that he is quoting here comes from David, was written by David, which we'll see is not just a a bibliographic note, but it's critical to the point that Jesus will make. But he says that in this psalm, and it's Psalm 110, that David is declaring these things, he says there, in the Holy Spirit, or by the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus and why we have the view of Scripture that we do. And here Jesus is really proclaiming the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, that Scripture is inspired, one of the foundational understandings that we have about this Bible that you have in your lap. 
Not that scripture is inspired as we talk about sometimes, not in the way that a great poet or a painter is inspired, that the writer just had some special insight into the religious stream of, stream of consciousness of the Jews, but rather it means that the Bible is, as Paul said, God breathed, breathed out by God. The actual revelation of God in the pages of the 66 books that make up our Bible. As I say very often, it's not man's word about God, but it's God's word about himself. And further, that the mechanism for, from, for getting from God's mind to the pages of Scripture was the actual thoughts and reflections and research, uh, etc., of the, the writers of the Bible, some 36 different authors over 1,600 years or so, as those authors, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1, were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, that too is the biblical doctrine of inspiration of Scripture, that God so worked in the human writers of Scripture, he did so in such a way through the Holy Spirit that the Bible is genuinely, authentically the work of those individual authors, and at the same time, as God worked through them through the Holy Spirit, they recorded exactly, precisely, down to the level of every word, what God wanted to say. Christian, always keep that in mind when you open your Bible and you read what is written there. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, what you read is God speaking. Let's rejoice in that, that God has given us such a gift. Let's treasure that gift. How precious is the book divine by inspiration given. Bright as a lamp, its doctrines shine to guide our soul to heaven, we sing. Every word breathed out by God. And that includes, of course, what David wrote in Psalm 110 which Jesus says was this. Verse 36, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. To which, verse 37, Jesus adds this comment, which is really the crux of what he is saying regarding the teaching of the scribes. He says, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Now your first response to this could be, quite possibly be, huh? And that's perfectly understandable. This is, is difficult, especially as we, we read it here. Is God talking to himself here? The Lord said to my Lord. Well, what is that? Well, to answer it, we really need to go back to the psalm that he is quoting, back to Psalm 110. So turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 110 for just a moment. Psalm 110, just going to read verse 1, because this is what Jesus quotes. The Lord says to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, unless you already know this and already know where Jesus is going, where we're going with this, or you are very observant, a first reading of verse 1 isn't much help. It says exactly the same thing, almost, as, as what Jesus says in Mark chapter 12, except that it doesn't. The difference is in the very first phrase. Notice the word in that first phrase, Lord. It's there twice. The Lord said to my Lord. But look more closely. The first time, it's in all caps. The second time, it's not. And that's because there are two different words underneath, two different Hebrew words in this beginning of this verse, both which we translate as Lord. The all uppercase one that begins there, the Lord who said, the Lord who is speaking, is the translation of the word Yahweh. And that's the the covenant name of God. That is the name by which God spoke and revealed himself to Moses out of the, the burning bush, the I Am. It refers to God, especially as he entered into covenant with Israel. It's the covenant name of God entered into the covenant with these people of his choosing as he revealed that covenant to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and so on. That's the first word in all uppercase, Yahweh. The other word is a translation of the word Adonai, which means something more like master. It's one with great authority. So Yahweh says to my Adonai, to my master, to my Lord. Now, the original context of this passage was likely the coronation of a king of Israel, and so the Adonai would have referred to the new king. So the sense was that the new king was being recognized and installed as God, Yahweh's own vice-regent, and, and it could only be understood symbolically that the king could in any way be said to be seated at the right hand of God to rule over the nation. Because the right hand of God signifies honor and closeness to God and legitimacy to, to rule and dominion and justice. That's the meaning of that opening phrase there. But two things came about that bring to light a deeper meaning here, or suggest a deeper meaning. First is what we read as our Old Testament reading this morning, 2 Samuel, the pronouncement of the covenant between God and David, which spoke of a future king from David's line who would rule over God's people eternally, a king that they would look forward to from David. The second thing is the fact that in 586 B.C., the monarchy of Israel was ended with the conquest of Judah by Babylon. And the kingdom of Israel never to this day has been restored. Now, yes, since it was in 1948, there's been a state of Israel, a nation of Israel, but it's not a kingdom. It doesn't have a king. But 
God had promised that a son of David would sit on the throne and over a kingdom that would have no end. And what does Yahweh say to this Adonai in Psalm 110, this, to this Lord and ruler? Well, he gives to him an invitation. He calls him to do something. He says, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Well, now we can remove the, the symbolic element of this statement. God is saying to this Adonai, whoever he is, join me in my place of rule over creation, over my kingdom, at my right hand. That is the place of sovereign authority until, he says, such a time as I cause all of your enemies to be defeated and to find themselves in the dust at your feet, totally vanquished and conquered and defeated. That was all known to the scribes and, to, and by those listening to Jesus. To all of the Jews, this psalm was recognized as a messianic psalm. It is recognized that this is speaking about the Messiah, that the Adonai being referred to here, the one to whom Yahweh is speaking, is the Messiah. But the reason that Jesus introduces it here has to do with that opening statement. The Lord says to my Lord, in light of an aspect of Jewish society, which was very important, and that is that the father was the head of the home. He was the head of the family. He was the head of the clan, the extended family. The father was always considered superior to all of his male descendants, to all of his descendants, period. He was always superior to his sons. A father would never bow to his son or act in any way or refer in any way to, to him in a way that put his son higher than him. That's why the dreams, remember, of Joseph, the youngest but one of Jacob's son, the, his dreams about them, the, the sheaves and such, bowing down before him, that's the reason it was so offensive to his brothers and to his father was because it just wasn't done. The father was always over the son, never the son over the father. Especially if the father was a king. And David was a king. And so here's the issue. Look at the statement. You can go back to, to uh, Mark now. The Lord said to my Lord, the first Lord is God, Yahweh. The second is a descendant of David, a ruler in the future. A descendant whom David refers to as my Lord. If this were merely David's descendant, that would be taboo. For David to refer to a descendant as my Lord would just blow the minds of any Jew. And it's a point that Jesus brings home with his question there in verse 37. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Jesus is saying the scribes have missed something here. There's something more to the Messiah than him being David's son. He is David's son, but he's not merely David's son. David would not, cannot be referring to someone who is merely his offspring, or there's no way he'd call him Lord. 
And by the time in Israel's history when Jesus is speaking, there's no king of Israel that it could be applied to. So what we're looking for here, what Jesus is pointing out, is we're looking for a descendant of David who is also superior to David, which would be pretty much an empty category in the minds of the Jews, in the minds of the scribes. Superior to, the, to David to the point where David would refer to him as my Lord. And not just that, but one to whom Yahweh, the Ancient of Days, the great God, the covenant God of Israel, the creator and sovereign of the universe, would make such an invitation to this one to sit at my right hand. This is an invitation to be a co-regent, not only of Israel, but over the kingdom of God. This Lord, this Adonai, is not only David's son, but he is also, and especially, David's Lord. And the kingdom he will come to rule over is not a restored kingdom of Israel, but it is a kingdom that Jesus said is not of this world. It's the kingdom of God. And that king came to be known as the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the servant of Yahweh, connecting it with all of these prophecies. He's the son of man. He's the son of God, all rolled together in one. And this verse, which Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, is the foundation for all of the places in the New Testament where you read of Jesus ascending to the right hand of the throne in heaven, and you come across it a lot. There's 22 times in the New Testament where that is referenced. Just a couple to whet your appetite. Hebrews 1, as the author there sets forth the superiority of Jesus above the angels, he says, And to which of the angels has he, that is God, ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The answer is none. He's never said that to an angel, but he said it to his son. He said it to Jesus. 1 Peter 3, 21 says, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. I'll let you look at the other 20 yourself. This Jesus is the Messiah. And that means that he is no mere man, no mere son of David, but he's also the son of God. And therefore is himself God. And he will ascend to the very throne of heaven and reign from there. The enemies vanquished by the Messiah are not the Greeks, not the Romans, not any other human kingdom, but John wrote that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That is from whom, whose bondage we have been rescued. And the means of that victory, the means for the Messiah of God, the Son of David and the Lord of David, for him to do that was his death and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven where he has been given all authority, Matthew 20, 28, or 28, 18. He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth and from where he currently rules over God's kingdom. 
But let us never forget, brothers and sisters, that that glory had to come through the way of the cross, which, as Jesus speaks here in Mark 12, is looming ever more darkly and ever closer to him. Humiliation first, crucifixion first, death first, then exaltation to the right hand of God. Until that last day when all of Christ's enemies are put under his feet. That's what the scribes had missed. That was the misunderstanding of the scribes and the Jews about the Messiah and what he had come to do. That's what they missed. We don't want to miss it. That God the Father, the Ancient of Days, said to the Messiah, his only begotten Son, and the one that he had anointed to send to humanity to provide salvation for them. You, he said, take the place of authority and rule and preeminence and power and majesty over this universe and over the kingdoms of men and over the kingdom of God until that last day when every enemy of yours is subdued and lay in the dust at your feet, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. David confessed that in Psalm 110. We confess it today, and all will confess him as Lord on the last day when the anointed one of God, Jesus Christ, returns and judges all men. Keeping in mind that the road to that time, to that place, is through humiliation and death on a cross. David's son and David's Lord. Let me close with an excerpt from the sermon of the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, the second chapter of Acts, that addresses these things. And following that, just one brief closing comment. From Acts chapter 2, Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he, that is Christ, was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. See, that explains it. At the end of our passage today, Mark notes, and the great throng heard him glad. Let us hear him gladly as well. 
as we rejoice in God's Messiah, David's Son, David's Lord, our Savior Jesus Christ. And to that, let us say, Amen. Father, we thank you for the Messiah. We thank you for the one that you anointed and appointed to come to this earth to live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death, to to rise from the dead, oh God, and to ascend back to heaven, to be seated at your right hand and to rule over your kingdom. And from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We thank you that through him, through Christ, that we are ready for that day. We look forward to that day, O God. We say with the, the writers of scriptures, O Lord, come quick. And we ask it for his glory, for your glory. Amen.